What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Len Sherman, an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School and author who has contributed to business publications such as Forbes, Wired, Financial Times, and The Economist. In this episode, we'll chat about the macro backdrop that gave rise to on-demand restaurant and grocery delivery, break down various holes in current models, and discuss frameworks for success when it comes to delivering food profitably. Alrighty, I'm very excited to be joined today by Len Sherman. He's an executive in residence and adjunct professor at Columbia Business School with over 40 years of experience in business teaching and research on business strategy and entrepreneurship. Prior to academia, Len was a senior partner at Accenture, where he helped launch the firm's corporate venture group as a general partner. Len, great to have you here. Good morning, Matt. Glad to be here. So really be curious to, you know, get a high level uh, intro on your background and kind of what you teach in your class titled Strategies for Long-Term Growth. Sure. Well, um, as you just said, academia is a, a second act for me after 30 years in management consulting, particularly or focused primarily on the automotive and transportation industries and through the lens of business strategy and uh, also had a a stint in corporate venture capital and new venture incubation. So um, I took all that and all the kind of mistakes I made and all the mistakes I observed a lot of other folks making. And I've been teaching at Columbia Business School for over a decade now with two courses, one on corporate entrepreneurship. You know, how, how do companies maintain a creative edge even after they become big and bureaucratic and sometimes pretty lazy? Uh, and secondly, a growth strategy class, which tries to answer a couple of simple questions, one of which is, you know, when you look at it, why have so few companies been able to achieve what I consider the holy grail of business, which is long-term, not only growth, but profits and growth? There are very few firms that accomplish that. And uh, if so, what does it take to beat the odds and become one of those firms? And, you know, we certainly have seen a lot of shooting stars in the last few years who seem to get off to a great start, but now are struggling. And so you're also the author of a book, If You're in a Dogfight, Become a Cat. What are some of the key takeaways from that book? Well, you know, it's kind of the simple observation that you can't expect to enjoy outsized returns on investment, you know, to just outperform competition if you're just another dog in a dogfight doing the same old, same old thing that everyone else is. So it, it really is a plea for continuous innovation and to find meaningfully differentiated and meaningfully better products than your competition. And if you can pull off that feat, and a lot of companies don't ever get there, but if you can, uh, unfortunately, you got to keep doing it again and again and again. So when you see some of the innovation, protracted innovation of the Apples and the Amazons, uh, Netflix for a while, you know, those are the firms that not only figured out some great ideas in the past, but have had lots and lots of encores. So it's it's tough to do, but that's uh, really the focus of the book. Okay, great. And and as far as, you know, your your current focus um, within tech, I, you know, kind of curious if you can talk about the various um, companies you follow. I'm, I know that you're watching Rideshare very closely, but in addition to that, you know, curious what how that intersects with food um, for our conversation today and some of the various um, 
you know, trends you're following there with regards to the, the startups and, and venture funding following it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I didn't start off in technology. I mean, mo- most of my uh, consulting career was, was working for very large, very mature, you know, the companies that can afford to pay crazy prices to hire consultants. Uh, but, you know, if you just look broadly about just how important the tech sector in general has become and how much of the market value on the S&P 500 is, is, has been taken over by the technology sector, it's hard not to um, spend more and more time looking at what's going on uh, there. As far as kind of the, the sectors that you follow on your blog and your podcast and the like, I first got interested in Uber, uh, primarily on the ride-sharing side, but also uh, with their entry back in 20, I think, 15 or 16, I guess, in Uber Eats. And and when I wrote an article uh, in, uh, I think it was in Forbes back in 2017, and it was titled, Why Can't Uber Make Money? And I was fascinated by Uber for a couple of simple reasons. At the time, they were losing more money and have added to that dubious distinction than any startup ever in history. No one has 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 re- lost more money than them. You know, in, in retrospect, sort of looking at where they are now and all the capital they've raised, mostly in the private capital markets, but then since going IPO as well, you know, they've raised and lost more than WeWork, more than Tesla. You know, Tesla <laughs> sort of created the whole automotive revolution of shooting rockets into space and, and hasn't raised as much money as um, and lost it uh, as Uber. So that's kind of fascinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, that raises the, the related question, why, why investors were so eager to pour so much investment into this money pit. And then even closer to your area of focus uh, on this program, uh, a couple of years later, the day DoorDash IPO'd, in, in fact, <laughs> I wrote another article and the title of that one was, I think, Why DoorDash it Will Fail to Deliver Investor Returns. So I've been pretty bearish on the gig economy as it applies to urban mobility, as it applies to food delivery, both on the restaurant and grocery side for, for quite some time. And I'd be happy to share my pessimism and why. It's The uh, question <laughs> is, where, where do you want to start? Love it. Yeah, I mean, I think... It'd be great to kind of talk about the various business models here with regards to marketplaces versus, you know, first party players uh, like like Amazon that uh, own and operate uh, the rails and also are vendors themselves and also maintain a marketplace. But, you know, be, be would love to kind of start there and look at, um, you know, the food delivery side where you're taking restaurants or grocery stores and using gig labor to pick, pack, and deliver from an existing warehouse, an existing store, sorry, versus, you know, owning a warehouse, you know, stocking it with products that you own, and then figuring out a way to to deliver that to a customer. All right. Well, um, <laughs> that's a big area. Let me, let me kind of step back for a second, I think, and I'll start with food delivery. But before I, I kind of jump into what some of the challenges are, in the food delivery space, just a little background and context, uh, because you know last mile delivery. Whether you're talking about the movement of people in in ride hailing or uh, goods in restaurant food and grocery and other convenience items, it's been a fascinating and, and kind of frightening 
sector to follow for the last, well, in, in this in this new millennium. You know, if you go back and look, you know, wh where have we been since the dawn of the internet? We've gone through the, these cycles of intense VC investment followed by lousy financial performance, epic failures, then a deep freeze when everyone's kind of afraid to get in the space. And then the cycle starts over and over and over again. <laughs> and, and it's just kind of weird. So, so I mean, I'm old enough and been <laughs> in these segments for a while. And so if I go back and look at the, the dawn of the internet in 2000, you know, we had Webvan and Cosmo and Urban Fetch, you know, none of which are with us anymore. They're long since bankrupt. And, you know, take Webvan. Uh, they went from IPO to bankruptcy in 18 months, which is pretty astonishing because they had raised over a billion dollars of capital. And they torched through all of it and burned their, their CEO, who used to be my boss before he jumped into the job at, at Webvan. <laughs> so that's... Wow. Uh, kind of depressing. Then you get to, the, you know, not much happening. And then you get to like the 2010s. And that's when DoorDash and Uber Eats and Deliveroo and, and some others jumped into the, you know, the delivery space on the heels of the launch of Uber and Lyft and Instacart. So, you know, you, you had to pay the price for the lost decade of 2000, you know, four, five, six, eight, nine. Finally, you know, into the 2010s, we get the current players. Uh, they're still around. They're still burning cash, all of them, but um, they're, they're still here. And then, then you get to the 2015s, mm. and it's insane. You get like $10 billion at last count that flowed into the instant delivery players, yeah. like GoPuff and Gatier and gorillas and and let's not forget the massive investments after that and e-scooters and electric passenger drones and you know on and on yep. and on and the question is you know why do we keep bouncing back why, why can't we just say this is no good well it's it it that's too negative and I, I hope we get to the point before this podcast is over that there are some real bright spots in this space but by golly why do we keep making the same mistakes and uh you know j just to finish the story of, you know, walking through history, because it is so fascinating. I, I think there's a couple of reasons why, despite all of these bumps in the road or, you know, major epic failures, there's some things about this category that are just, you know, you can't resist it. Number one, they're huge. You know, food delivery and transportation are the, you know, after paying for the roof over your head, they're the two biggest items in your household budget. So they're just huge, huge businesses when Uber wrote their or published their S1, their prospectus, when they're about to go public, they claimed that the, their total accessible market was $12 trillion, which is like bigger than the GDP of Germany, <laughs> France, Italy. It's like, I, you know, you can't blame guys for going after that market. And then there's, you know, all this kind of seductive promise of new technology. Oh, it's it was bad then, but it's going to be different now. And then, <laughs> you know, the final point of the kind of, perfect storm for where we are is the zero interest rate policies, which just created a massive liquidity that needed to find the place to invest. So, right. you know, it, it's, it's been tough. It's been tough. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, I can you know, talk to you about what, why it's been so tough in restaurant delivery or yeah. what, is that a good place to start? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I just wanted to share real quick is that, that you, as you were describing, kind of the e-scooter and phenomenon alongside, you know, 
what subsequently came with the rapid delivery was like this idea of optimism of high high returns, competition entering the market. Then everyone is is essentially rushing in. Uh, returns are falling below the cost of capital. Then you have companies consolidating, people getting nervous about the future, and then you know essentially fewer one or two players left, but still you know just a massive amount of capital, as you said, ten billion dollars. Um, ten billion dollars. I, I didn't been count tor- that. Torched, absolutely <laughs> torched into the instant delivery. You know this notion that. I think one of the things that's that's behind a lot of this activity is the notion that you know faster is always better and bigger is always better, and I don't believe that at all. And I think some of the great examples of companies that seem to be on the right track are actually delivering uh, their services mm. slower than yeah. the incumbent market leaders and just with a lot more discipline. And you know, it's great to say who wouldn't want to get their ice cream fix in 10 minutes. But if you step back and say, well, what does it really cost to pull that feet off? And are people willing to pay that price for a pint of ice cream? You know, the answer is resoundingly absolutely not. So, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta make sure the business model is realistic and not just make these, you know, wild assumption. It's always better to be faster and bigger, which has driven too much money chasing, you know, bad business models. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and I would love to kind of go back in, in the time and think about, okay, why has everyone said it's different this time, right? I think what's changed is in, in the web van era, there was really no demand, right? That you didn't have nearly as, you didn't have the smartphone. We no, had no. Uh, very few people had broadband penetration. It was just Correct. college campuses and people who were early adopters who could afford it. But we didn't have this audience. And so VC money has now essentially tricked people into these habits, essentially, of, you know, subsidized instant delivery and subsidized, you know, same day delivery of groceries and, and, and have basically trained us on this convenience. So I'm, I guess let's I, I'm curious to get a sense from you of like, obviously, we're in the trough of it now, unclear exactly how much longer this lasts for and how everything kind of shakes out from here. But I guess it'd be helpful to understand, you know, like what in your mind has changed from the the last dot com bubble to now uh, when it comes to delivering groceries or restaurant delivery food, and and where where do you who do you expect to be a winner here? Yeah, well, as you say, there there has been technological progress, and the biggest players in the game. Uh, you know, whether it's a DoorDash for restaurant or Instacart for grocery delivery, at least in this country, and, and Uber for uh, urban mobility, uh, didn't invent anything in the sense that they took advantage of, they, they created a mashup of some wonderful, wonderful technologies that are, had emerged, you know, since the beginning of, of this millennium which is to say the, the fact that everyone has a smartphone in, in their hands and high-speed uh, connectivity is just widely, widely available. And the fact that people are so accustomed to buying anything online, anything, whether it's groceries or um, uh, boots or sponges or anything else. So they had all the advantages of you know th- this environment that didn't exist in 1999, 2000. So that's the good part. Uh, the bad part 
is that despite that, some of just the harsh realities of the challenging business model involved for either urban mobility or let's let's start with restaurants for uh, restaurant delivery, you know, hasn't changed. So basically, you know, whether you're talking DoorDash or Uber Eats or any of these players in restaurant delivery, you're talking about a company that is essentially trying to bolt on a costly, inherently inefficient delivery service onto an existing kind of ecosystem of relatively low margin businesses, i.e. restaurants, that were never set up to handle this kind of both you know, in in store dining experience plus um, yeah. uh, delivery uh, efficiently, and and so it it's it's just you're you're trying to kind of carve out a a piece in the overall value chain rather than looking at the entire. How do you kind of rethink the whole way food gets you know from its wholesale you know point of origin onto a customer's table or into into their right. mouths? So you're just taking one piece of it, you know, and it's kind of. Just as a case in point, it's kind of interesting to note or remember, because I'm sure you remember this, that Grubhub was founded in, uh, I think, 2006 or so out of the University of Chicago Incubator. And it was at the time strictly an online ordering platform. There was nothing about delivery. So the, you know, basically it made it very easy at the beginnings of people having widespread ownership of smartphones to you know, order your meal, and if the restaurant had delivery, they might deliver it, and if not, you'll you'll go pick it up. But that's where it began and end. And you know, let the record show that that in 2014 the company IPO'd. In 2015, the company was profitable. Everything was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't do this delivery thing. They just made the ordering <laughs> process you know much more efficient and convenient. Right. And then they made the fatal mistake of saying, well, let's kind of add delivery as well. And they bought up a bunch <laughs> of um, delivery companies. And that was the beginning of the end, because from that year on, 2016 on, uh, Grubhub has lost a, a ton of money. And everyone that followed them in delivery, everyone's a loser. Every single one of them is a loser. <laughs> so, you know. Right. This year, I can't believe it. The the market seemed pretty happy with DoorDash's Q3 earnings report. I looked at it and said, wait a second, you're on track to burn a billion dollars in cash and lose a billion dollars of net income. You know, how is this, you know, a happy dance? I <laughs> quite under, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, so that that's um, you know what we're dealing with. But just to you know put the wrapper on. So what is it about the business model that just inherently makes this sector so tough to make money. Well, it's got all kinds of things that work against them. It's relatively small gross order volume, certainly compared to groceries. Right. Because of that, the delivery fees are kind of capped. I mean, how much are you willing to pay to have a burrito or two <laughs> delivered to your home or office? Right. The services that have popped up, you know, Uber Eats, they'll will say they're better than than DoorDash and vice versa. But as, as far as the consumer is concerned, they're they're being bought off by promotions all the time as these you know two players are jockeying to kill each other. Uh, most of the stakeholders aren't happy. You know the couriers aren't happy, the restaurants aren't happy, uh, shareholders can't be too happy over the last couple of years. And you know just kind of this whack a mole where you kind of squeeze one 
one party to try to make the other stakeholder a little happier, but there's just not enough value being created because you've only taken a piece of the value chain to work with. And there's limited potential for productivity improvements. I mean, all these players keep saying we're getting better and better, but the most obvious way to improve the economics of delivering food is if you can batch orders, but there's obvious problems on the quality of the product you're delivering when you start trying to batch order. So you put all these pieces together, those things haven't changed. It's been a horrible, horrible category to make money from day one. And that aspect of the business hasn't changed. Yeah, totally. Yeah. On the note of the DoorDash uh, Q3 earnings, you know, I think people saw that they've really grown these, um, non-restaurant verticals, right? And they're telling a story that they can kind of be everything to everyone, that they're going after, you know, just alone, you know, just in the for restaurants and convenience alone in the US, it's a quote unquote $1.6 trillion TAM. And we're not even talking about international and we're not even talking about, you know, pet food and all the other random items that we could start giving you on demand. And as we grow this network, our cost per order for delivery is gonna, you know, decrease. Um, and they're really, you know, it's really trying to rub sticks together and to create alchemy out of out of nothing, really. But in this asset light model, <laughs> in in all due respect to Mister Shu, we've been to this dance before. I mean, this is this is the playbook of Uber. So Uber starts in 2011, 2012, depending on when you think they really um, started their services, and over the balance of that decade, uh, when it was clear that they were losing a ton of money on the core ride-hailing business, they shifted the the narrative to, well, we're going to become the Amazon of transportation. And they started layering up adding businesses exactly the way right. DoorDash is. And, you know, they added, you know, scooters and they added um, uh, air drone taxi service and they... Uh, <laughs> got involved with uh, autonomous vehicles, which will help make everything even better. And, you know, on and on and on. And they kept saying, well, we're losing money, but uh, that's because we're investing in all, all this growth. But, you know, through it all, the, the core economics have continued to drag down their performance. And in Uber's case, the best thing that could have happened to them was the pandemic in the sense that things were so desperate on the right handling side Mm-hmm. And therefore, their overall financials were so bad that they shucked off all of those things. So you can see this <laughs> massive divestment away from that. So we haven't been through that cycle yet with DoorDash, but I um... yeah, interesting. So so let's let's zoom in a little bit more here into the, these these models. Because it's clear it's clear that there's a lot of spaghetti being thrown at the wall, and there's a lot of scaling before nailing it. To steal the words of. Um, GoPuff co-CEO Raphael Ilyashev. What was it, scaling it before nailing it? Nailing it, it. yeah, because they're trying to, you know, essentially give you all these products before nailing the, the, the unit economics and the logistics, right? Let's zoom in a little bit deeper into this first party versus third party kind of dynamic, right? Of kind of end-to-end vertical integration. Uh, within grocery or restaurants, right? So mm-hmm. on the um, on the restaurant side, you have players like Cloud Kitchens that are trying to actually go as far as owning, going upstream and owning the actual dirt, the real estate of the kitchen, and that somehow this is going to be their way of making food delivery work. And you have players like Wonder, which are, <laughs> you know, also laying off a, a ton of people now and, you know, delivering food in vans because it's going to, 
solve yeah. the quality problem and that they're going to license these famous restaurant recipes and cook them in turbo chefs on board these trucks for and then you on the grocery side have you know mass retailers like walmart and amazon which are you know doing a mix of fulfilling from their own stores building dedicated warehouses owning the fleets of the vehicles or right. or working with gig wor workers in their own in their own right but it's like a different kind of classification of worker a contractor so to speak so would love to kind of look at some of these players and is this the answer to some of these woes that you're describing? Right. Um, it can it could be, um, I, I just can't let that comment. I'm sorry. I hadn't heard that comment about, we got, we got to scale it before we nail it. <laughs> but having just heard that, Matt, I can't let that go <laughs> without responding that that is one of the, the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I'm sorry. That, that's yeah. just uh, absurd. And, and it really gets to the heart of what we, you know, we've been to this answer. We're, we've seen it before with Uber. We're seeing it now with, with DoorDash. And certainly that was the case for a while for GoPuff until they started, had to kind of start shrinking back. But one of the things that I, I tell my students all the time is when you're trying to, understand whether the economics of a business, you know, makes sense. What would have to be true to, to make the, the things that we're seeing a logical business strategy? And so, you know, take DoorDash, which is not this vertically integrated guy. You know, what made DoorDash, as far as I could see, the, the giant that they are today is a, a blitz scaling round of investments that were made in the company. So between 2018 and 20. 20, they attracted $2 billion of venture capital, which is, you know, an amazing amount of capital raise. And essentially all of it was spent on sales and marketing. They blew $2 billion in sales and marketing, and they took their market share in the U.S. from 17% to almost 60% that you see today. So the question is, that's great. You know, that's the scale. It, and then don't worry, we'll nail it, but we, we got to get the scale first. But, you know, what would have to be true to make that $2 billion investment sensical? Well, a couple of things. You would do that if you thought that there were significant economies of scale and your costs would come way down as you scaled, so that would be great. You know, and that's true of a company like Google or you know, Facebook when things were going well for them because the marginal cost of an additional customer is essentially zero, but you're dealing with a very variable cost business in delivery. Every mm -hmm. delivery, whether it's the first or the 10 billionth, costs you money because you got to pay the driver. So you don't have huge economies of scale. And then you say, well, maybe it's kind of customer lock-in. We'll get these customers and, and then we'll have them. Well, you know, the only way that that you could achieve a lot of loyalty in this business. Well, one of two ways you keep giving promotions that are very, very costly, or you offer these kind of loyalty programs. But loyalty programs are really expensive. And I don't know about you, I have no idea. And Tony, um, the CEO of DoorDash, ain't talking about it. Mm. DoorDash is a great deal for the customer. Is it a great deal for DoorDash. Are they making money on the DoorDash program? I have not seen definitive proof they have. It's costing them a lot of money. The break-even is pretty low for a customer. So maybe the, the customers who stay on that program the best are actually costing DoorDash money, not, right. not giving profits. You're talking about DashPass, right? DashPass, yeah, the yeah. loyalty program. So yeah, I mean, as they 
they they did they do report that they see higher average order frequency um yeah. but like as you mentioned they're they have to eat some of the deliveries so the question is whatever the contribution profit is on that customer for, you know you have to look at the incremental amount of orders that they're going to do and what is the incremental contribution profit compared to someone else that is a non dashpass user right and yeah. are, are are those dashpass users going to utilize the service for higher take rate kinds of categories right because as you mentioned you know the $33 AOV of a DoorDash order in the restaurant space isn't great especially when you consider that they're only make, they're make they just broke out their contribution margins on that business it's about 7% on a blended basis it's about 3% right you can account mm -hmm. for all the other verticals so the question is it's what is the AOV and what is my take rate on these other right other categories and are those more loyalty loyal customers going to be buying from those and are there some customers that subsidize you know some dashpass customers with low utilization subsidizing high utilization dashpass yeah. unprofitable customers right so there's a lot of different levers here to pull uh you know i'll i'll sort of leave you with two, two last thoughts on the non vertically integrated approaches and then we'll we'll, we'll switch to the the brighter the the more uplifting view of what are some of the successful approaches that we're we're, uh, we're seeing you know, I listened to the third quarter earnings reports of DashPass, of uh, uh, DoorDash and, and uh, Uber. And I'm always struck by the fact after I, I hear the CEOs and the CFOs talking about what's happening, what they're doing, that I walk away and I don't really know how their business is performing. I mean, th there's never enough hard data and information and insight, and nor, nor are some of the questions that are being asked <laughs> particularly uh, <laughs> In, in hitting on the important things. So for example, uh, DoorDash, what didn't I know? Well, they were very, very proud to talk about the triple digit growth rates and some of the new categories they're getting into, yeah. you know, whether it's convenience or liquor or pharmaceuticals or some of the, the non-restaurant categories. And, you know, 100%, 80% year-on-year growth, it's fantastic. But I never heard them talk about what's the growth in their core, you know, same store business or what are, what retailers report to same store sales mm. in your core legacy restaurant business. How fast is that growing or not? Did you, you know, hit the big growth in the pandemic? And is that part kind of flat? Right. Uh, I don't know because they, they won't, they won't talk about it. And, you know, Walmart talks about same store sales and, and, um, McDonald's does and Chipotle does and Costco does ever, you know, everyone in this sort of category is, Right. You know, willing to say this is what's working and here's, you know, so I, I don't know. Not. And then the, we already talked about a lack of understanding about, you know, dash pass. And then lastly, there was no questions asked and virtually nothing said about how important the advertising business can right. and will be for um, DoorDash, which I think is their best opportunity to make a profit. Maybe their only one is, is advertising. And yet no one's really talking about it. I agree. I mean, I think a lot of the deliveries and service of something higher margin, and if you look at, you know, all these categories, I think grocery is a, a much more ripe opportunity for ads versus something so low margin like restaurants. So you have to get CPGs to spend money on the restaurant side of things, not restaurants spending money on ads, right? Because as you mentioned, it's such a low margin business. Same thing right. with with groceries. So the CPGs, where are the CPGs going to be allocating dollars? Is it to get you, Len, an extra 
Coca-Cola purchase attached to your order, or is it going to be to get you to actually add it in the cart at the grocery store? You know, I, I think the jury's well, still th- out on I the think, restaurant. Uh, actually, I think DoorDash can shake down, <laughs> shake down is probably too strong a word, uh, could get advertising revenue from both those sources. So on their grocery, you know, their growing uh, movement into grocery and, and convenience items, I think they could get uh, the CPG uh, companies to, um, to do point of sale, you know, you're about to buy a, a, a you know, a, a, a carton of, of uh, soda and who's going to get the placement, you know, on top of the list, whether it's Pepsi or Coke, you know, one, one of those guys may, may want to pay to play. But I think that it's also true that you, you'll get a paid advertisements on the restaurant side as Uber Eats has already been seeing, you know, they've been running ads on, on the Uber yeah. Eats side for, for quite a while. So, you know, I, I, I guess the best example of why that might be the the most profitable growth opportunity for DoorDash is look at Amazon and their e-commerce business. You know, as best I can tell, if you pull uh, Amazon's numbers apart, they're losing money on their e-commerce business. When you take, you know, full account of all of their operating costs for their e-commerce business, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. the biggest in the world by far. But Last year, they pulled in $31 billion of advertising. <laughs> and, you know, I, that's really high margin. You know, in the extreme, you can say it's it's all profit because they yeah. have automated ad, you know, advertising placements. And, you know, you take all that money and it just drops right to the bottom line. So were it not for advertising, the biggest e-commerce player in the world would be losing money. So I, I think this is a the possible only justification for DoorDash's mad dash to, to build all the scale, to scale it. And the, the nailing it, I think, more than anything is going to require advertising, which creates some real problems for restaurants and grocery uh, mm-hmm. and, and you know, the stores that sell merchandise because that, that's the revenue that they want in some cases rather than giving it to DoorDash. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Great food for thought. So let's flip the sentence. Who's nailing yeah. it and then going to scale it, right? Or who's already yeah. got the scale and succeeding we've talked about a little we mentioned about amazon i mean amazon's playing in this space within grocery right against instacart by going first party um walmart is obviously really hard to dissect exactly you know they are consolidated so it's very hard to actually know how well they're doing in just grocery specifically because you how do you define a grocery basket within a bunch of other household appliance you know electronics and whatever Right. That consumers Although are uh, groceries, groceries are the the biggest category in Walmart sales, so it's not all of it, but it's it's certainly as groceries go, that's going to really drive their economics, you know, more than anything else. In the delivery business, how does a much more vertically integrated approach provide better growth and profit opportunities? So I'm particularly intrigued by the prospect uh, or the opportunity to reimagine the entire value chain about how do I want to deliver value from soup to nuts, uh, you know, rather than just, you know, one piece of it being, you know, cloud kitchens upstream or delivery downstream. But how about someone saying, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to do this yet, but let's just look at the entire value chain and where, where is there costs and inefficiencies and, and how might I put my arms around the whole thing? And because of that, come up with solutions that are very, very different and usually much more vertically integrated in terms of wrapping your arms around the whole operation. And why, why could that, should that be better? So for example, you know, one of my favorites 
uh, is the grocery operation called Picnic that uh, launched in the Netherlands and now is in Germany and intriguingly may be coming to the US one of these days. Uh, and, and this is a company that from the beginning is, is performing every single step in the value chain from the actual wholesale pick and pack operations through the order processing and the payment processing to the delivery of their own vehicles with their own employees uh, of goods and everything in between. And so why, you know, why is that better? Well, let me just start with how the customer sees it. The customer sees it as uh, fresher, therefore better food, certainly for uh, perishables and, and, and uh, you know, vegetables and the like, produce and the like, uh, lower prices. That is, they're paying lower prices on the actual grocery items than if they went to the biggest grocery chains themselves and shopped in Europe and absolutely free delivery. There is no delivery fee at all. So, you know, this is like, oh, and by the way, you'll be given a 20 minute delivery window. So when, when you're told you're to expect your delivery with great reliability, they're nailing it within a 20 minute window, not the two hours that Instacart or DoorDash will give you. So you say, well, you know, that's crazy good. Um, how do they do that? Well, there is one little hitch. The one little hitch is, you as a customer have to partner with us picnic to have the discipline to order a day in advance. It could be as late as 10 PM the, the day before, but you know, a day in advance. And because you're able and willing to do that, we know exactly, exactly what food items are being ordered. Therefore we will only stock our warehouses overnight with exactly what we need. So we have no waste. We have the freshest possible food. We also know that we can load the trucks precisely in, in to optimize the route when they are delivered so that the truck driver can uh, make 14 deliveries per hour instead of the one and a half to two at best that Instacart can do, more like one. And uh, you, know, you put all these pieces together with less waste and much more efficient delivery you know, everything optimized, you know, uh, oh, and we're, we're only willing to accept customers uh, off of a waiting list when we know we have enough customer density in a given neighborhood mm. to run those those routes. So, yeah. so it's not like, you know, you could sign up and 10 minutes later be eating ice cream, <laughs> right. which is the promise of the instant delivery. But they've sort of rethought the entire value chain. And the customer value proposition is better. The costs are much better. The economics are much better. Customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, every step of the way is optimized you know, to, to make the whole system work in a very integrated, efficient fashion. So I look at that and say, that's a pretty good deal. I know it works in Europe. I, I, we just we have a different mindset in the US about instant gratification. I'm not sure um, you know, how much customers will be you know, willing to order in advance, but it seems like a small price to pay for a very big upside benefit. Yeah. I mean, I think Instacart is already starting to do this, right? Where they want to expand the value proposition of delivery to people who previously considered this a luxury. So obviously some of that involves EBT snap integrations, but another part of this involves creating, you know, scheduled delivery for 24 hours plus out that would lower the cost to the consumer because they could 
do more batching and they have more predictability into those orders and they might be able to combine a scheduled order with an on-demand order to essentially leverage the scheduled order sure uh, to to lower the cost per d- delivery on the on-demand side right and there's there's other players right. that are doing this there's also you know like a company called farmstead in the US I'm not sure if you've heard of them that mm-hmm. uh, circle k invested in that is trying to do something similar to picnic here in the US but definitely seems like a feature that people you know you, if you go on walmart you can see they have the most astronomical costs for same day delivery and then are able to give you lower costs on the next day. Mm-hmm. But the people in America, they, they, we, we want our cake and we want to eat it too. So I guess, how do these things exist side by side? There's going to be clearly people that want something same day or something more convenience related. And then there's going to be the, your typical grocery shop, right? The average well, American did 1.8 trips to the grocery store on, on average per week prior to the pandemic. So what about that point eight? Well, I guess the the answer to that question to me is with very few exceptions, there are no companies that serve the entire market. Uh, you, you you know, by definite, you know, show me a company that tries to appeal to everyone and I'll show you a company that, you know, probably appeals to very few people. And, and uh, unless you have the discipline to say, you know, Nordstrom's is not trying to be Walmart and Walmart's not trying to be Walmart. I mean, you, you just accept a certain segment of the market and you hope that segment is big enough that you can offer a, you know, fabulously appropriate set of products and services to appeal to your target mm-hmm. audience, recognizing that you won't appeal to others. In fact, the other people will probably hate you. <laughs> and, I, you know, a, some perfect examples. IKEA is not trying to serve everybody. But 75 years ago, they said, hey, we want to partner with our customers and those who are willing to transport their purchases and assemble (laughs) their furniture uh, at home, Mm -hmm. uh, we will be able to, you know, and that's not for everyone. Uh, That's, you know, a lot of people say, I have no interest in doing that. And that's fine. And, you know, last I checked, the key was the largest furniture retailer in the world. and And it serves a certain segment of the marketplace. So I I guess you just have to decide whether you're trying to be everything for everybody mm. or, or not. And, you know, Uber and DoorDash and Instacart have initially said, we want to be the mass market player. We want to, you know, be out there and do it all. Mm. I, I don't think that's a winning play. I love the IKEA analogy. I guess I'm curious if there's any other ones we should talk about. I know you've done some work on FedEx and have studied them closely. I, I know that DoorDash has always called itself the hyper-local FedEx, right? In the sense that they want to be powering local communities. And they said, well, FedEx can get you something from point A to point B from state to state, but no one's doing it within your city, right? Mm -hmm. So I zoom in on the city, you know, you have very few players prior to to all these logistics players, right? Like DoorDash and Uber and Instacart that were enabling commerce within your city. You only had ship to home. Within you know traditional eating. yeah I, I you know what I guess one of the, one of the reasons that no one's no one's done the FedEx as uh, in last mile is it's it's for the reasons we've talked about it's so freaking hard <laughs> it's just a very 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 tough sector because of the very difficult you know stochastic variability I mean you have very little predictability when when you try to be the instant delivery for a last mile movement. 
And it's very hard to get the supply side, you know, the hardest challenge of a last mile deliver of people or goods is balancing supply and demand. And every player, certainly the ones we've been talking about here, you know, struggle with that every day. But I think it's, you know, it's interesting to note that Uber tried their hand uh, at merchandise delivery saying, oh, we have this, you know, massive uh, pool of drivers. And, you know, since we can move people, certainly we can move goods. And they launched something called Uber Rush, one of the many, right. many services that they said were going to be the Amazon of last mm-hmm. mile delivery and let the record show that I think it was two years later, they shut that thing down, said, just can't do it. Amazon tried their hand in restaurant delivery. They had an Amazon restaurants division yep, for four years before they said, too hard. It just we, we won't make money. And this is, this is at a time that when they pulled out, when they were expanding in all kinds of areas, but they said it was, it was too complicated. So it's, um, you know, I, we've talked a lot on this call about the challenges of last mile delivery. It's, it's a very, very tough business to make money. And uh, that's why I'm so bullish on approaches which focus on a certain segment and niche of the marketplace, you know, rather than try to right. conquer it all. And, you know, one last, yes, for example, is one last example I'd share I had a, as a guest speaker in my uh, class two weeks ago, a guy named Will Coleman, who's the CEO of Alto, A-L-T-O. Yep. It's a rideshare player, and um, they're currently operating in six cities. And even within those cities, they, they're pretty focused on which areas of the cities they want to serve. But being a small player, they've only raised about 40 only. That's not bad. $45 million <laughs> um, of venture capital investment so far. There's no way they can compete with Uber wait time. You know, if you want to say we'll be every bit as quick when you call us, we'll be there even that's not going to happen. So this is again a kind of a sense of partnering with your customers. So what they tell their customers is we will be even more reliable in picking you up when we tell you we'll pick you up than Uber is but it won't be as fast. And so what we say to, to our customers, Alto, is give us a 10-minute warning. Before, so instead of finishing your dessert, putting your jacket on in the restaurant, walking out on the street and saying, oh, I, I need my ride now, why don't you give us you know, an order on your smartphone as you're about to you know, whip through your, your carrot cake and take 10 minutes to eat it. And then when you finish, we'll be there waiting for you. So they're literally mm. um, saying, we're going to sort of get reliable right around the 10 minute uh, window. And here's the shocking part. They tell their drivers, hey, when you get a call for a ride and you happen to be around the corner, don't show up, wait 10 minutes. We literally Mm. need to train our customers. It's gonna be 10 minutes. It's gonna be 10 minutes. And so this is, you know, Picnic does the same. You gotta order the day in advance. It's gonna be 10 minutes. If you can get a segment of the market that says, yeah, because that's no big deal. I'd just be a little more disciplined. The costs come down, the reliability goes up, the experience is better, et cetera, et cetera. So I um, love that. That's a that's a fascinating analogy. So this idea of A, partnering with their customer, great, right. great phrase. And the second part is training them as you partner with them. Totally. Another great thing, but easier said than done when we've been just going through two years of VC subsidized 15, 30 minute, everything, right? Yeah. How do you, you know, it's like, has it all been left out, out of the bag? And can we, can we get people to, to go back in time and just say, no, 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 I'm gonna train myself to 
you know, slow down here? Like, does that ever slow down? And, and you have Amazon getting into, they've gone from like three day delivery to one day delivery to now they're in some cities and I've actually gone undercover and done this doing same day delivery of a yeah, well, hundred thousand delivery. There's two hour delivery in parts of New York where I live. So, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. One one other example, by the way, vertical integration that's worth mentioning, and I think it's a, a good one, uh, is Domino's Pizza. Uh, you mm. know, they are the only major um, pizza national brand that absolutely positively refuses to work with third party delivery shops like Uber Eats and and, right. and DoorDash, and so. Again, this is like putting all of the pieces together. And when they made that decision, they said, first of all, we have greater store density than, than our Papa John's and Pizza Hut. We, we have more stores. So um, our delivery routes will be shorter and therefore more efficient, and we can afford to do our own delivery. Mm-hmm. On top of that, it's kind of a very interesting policy they now have where they're actually pay their customers to do their own pickup, which is to say, if you order a pizza, <laughs> if you want to deliver it, the price will be X. If you come pick it up, the price will be three bucks less. or whatever that number is, because it depends mm. on inflation and stuff. Interesting. Um, and, you know, and then the last thing, and it's a really, really important thing, which, which gets at some of the challenges that Instacart and DoorDash and the others are facing, is Domino's was determined to maintain control of the, quote their customers. They wanted the entire every interaction. They wanted to be you know on a on a Domino's website, a Domino you know an app on your smartphone. Um, you know they they don't want an intermediary to sort of control that in a relationship. The customer going on DoorDash first to find out where they're going to order pizza, and a Pizza Hut runs a little ad. <laughs> With a big promotion in your you know, yeah. in your city, you know you've lost that sale, and they want to be directly the ones. So that that's an important thing to consider as well, in, in terms of you know trying to control that whole value chain yourself and directly interact with your customers. Yep, fascinating, and lots of lots of good lessons to be learned from these 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 big players. Um, so is it safe to say that you know vertical integration? I mean, some of the people you've mentioned, it, it doesn't seem like the third, the first party model always works in your mind. If instant grocery, you know, instant needs, which, you know, GoPuff and the like are, are all kind of struggling right now, you know, it, that doesn't seem to necessarily be the holy grail. Is it safe to say that you need a certain average order value to be vertically integrated with a value proposition on the logistics side to make it work? Like I guess, what are, what are some of the hard, the the kind of parameters to 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 set as far as like you know lessons learned from these examples, right? If we had to, yeah, kind I, of I think the, these. the the two important the two important things to me uh, are a deep understanding of uh, the business model of what. That's why I just so viscerally reject this notion of scale it and nail it. I mean, to me, that is just lunacy, because you know, basically what it says is scale will fix all problems. Let's just get in there, raise $2 billion, you know, blow it all, it's, you know, scale this immense DoorDash uh, 60% market share in the U.S. And that will solve all problems. That, that's, that's, to me, that's crazy. I, you really, really have to understand, you know, what does it cost you when you say I'm going from two day to one day to, you know, two hour to 15 minute delivery? What, what are the costs associated 
with that. And, and I think a lot of these folks have rushed into these various um, bigger and faster is always better w- without recognizing just how costly that would be. And then the second thing is on the other side to really give some deep thought about, you know, what are the customer pain points, you know, and or, and or what are the, on the upside, uh, the value propositions that would be particularly appealing to customers. And when you start looking at, at the pain points and, and what you might be able to do, it won't appeal to everybody, but, you know, hopefully a big enough segment, you know, you could put the two pieces together and say, hey, if we find some, the right kind of trade-offs and the right kind of, quote, partnerships with our customers, we can dramatically reduce our, our costs and improve the reliability and quality of the service we deliver. And then the pieces fit together, but you can only make those pieces fit together if you're sort of thinking holistically about the business as a whole. And then the third and last thing I would add is just recognize from from the beginning that you should assume that um, whatever your business is going to be, it's not going to satisfy everybody. Because if you start off saying we're going to be the biggest gorilla on the block and just, you know, scale accordingly, and then the the size will take care of the rest um, is a prescription for the kind of, yeah. um, epic, epic money-losing propositions that we've seen. So right. um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, a friend of mine has a great quote. We can have anything, but we can't have everything, which I always come back to in this game of delivery. So well well taken. Thank you so much for all your insights. It's been fascinating to dive in here. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, how can they do that? Or if people want to take your course, uh, you know, how do they, how, how does everyone, how does anyone contact you here? Uh, so I, my Twitter handle is um, at Len Sherman CBS, all one word, CBS standing for Columbia Business School. And uh, I don't know if you put uh, links on your um, podcast page, but I, I, I referenced a couple of articles I wrote about why can't Uber make money and why will DoorDash uh, uh, disappoint investors. Uh, I, I can certainly uh, pass those along to you if you want. Great. We'll put those in the show notes. And um, thank you again for coming on. A lot of food for thought. No pun intended. (laughs) Well done. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.